0: How do I navigate the legal considerations of breaking away from my current firm to transition to the RA model? That is today's question on the Transition to RA question and answer series. It is question number 41. Hi, I'm Brad Wales with Transition to RAA. and on today's topic, we have a uh, the question that's asked in almost every situation when I'm talking to advisors that are looking to leave, you know, whatever model or affiliation or firm they're at currently to move into that RA model. And that that question is, you know, what legal considerations do I need to be aware of, leave in my firm, and and then how do I navigate those legal considerations to do that, you know, essentially safely and smoothly and and successfully as part of that. So uh, for those of you watching here on video, uh, happy to report we have a wonderful guest today. We have Sharon Ash, who's the chief litigation counsel from Hamburger Law Firm, who is the expert on this sort of thing. So Sharon, thanks for joining us today.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having me, Brad. Nice to be here.
0: Terrific. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to Sharon to give a little background on herself and her firm in just a moment, but um, just did want to articulate again, why this is such an important topic. And so there's lots of variables that go into making that move to the RE model. And that's, that's why I make so many videos and podcasts covering so many different topics. But at the end of the day, one of the most important issues is that, you know, hey, can I successfully depart and make that transition? So as important as things are like, marketing and technology and custodians and all that stuff that you that you have to put into consideration for your new firm if you can't make a successful transition out of your your current firm kind of all that's a moot point so that that, that's why this is so often brought up and why it's so important and and as we're going to talk about today it's there's kind of a spectrum or range of of advisors where for some advisors this is a, a pretty low level topic that, that it's not much concern for them based on their circumstances and other advisors. It's absolutely a significant uh, topic to be aware of. And and I do want to preface it to not, um, this is not meant to scare anyone uh, or anything like that, but I think it's important to understand what that process is. And And the reality is there is a very well-defined process of how to do this, but I would also say that process is continuously evolving. So what worked Five years ago, what worked 10 years ago or before is not necessarily the same strategies that are used today. And so that's why it's so important to work with someone like Sharon that can, can, can help you navigate what the current landscape is and the best practices out there. So with that background, Sharon, if you could give a little background on yourself and your firm, uh, that would be fantastic.
1: Sure. So um, I head up the litigation and employment transition uh, division at the Hamburger Law Firm. Um, the law firm is an affiliate of Market Council, which is our regulatory compliance consultancy, and it's really a, uh, a unique um, approach that we bring to this type of um, uh, subject matter for a transitioning advisor. So we really uh, have the ability to answer those questions right at the outset. And in fact, Brad, as you identified, this is uh, the most critical move of an advisor's life, right? No one's making a transition so that they can start their career all over again. Um, and if the transition part fails, then everything else that you might be called upon uh, to build by way of uh, a firm or tucking into another firm, um, really is, uh, is of, of no use. And so um, at our firm, we often start with what we'll call transition intelligence and helping advisors understand what their restrictions are and navigate that path. But because we are part of uh, Market Council as well, we have the ability to really take an advisor from the kernel of should I should I leave, all the way through um, what are the not only the legal. Uh, requirements and legal issues that you'll want to consider when you're making a transition, but then also setting up the firm. So our regulatory team and our business group will then help that advisor uh, set up their their RIA or develop documentation if they're tucking into another firm and then, even at launch, Market Council has the ability to continue to offer ongoing compliance consulting. So this really is, you know, uh, the life cycle of a business, and it starts most often with what we're going to talk about today.
0: Great, yeah. Thanks for that background, and I think it is important to, to point out how there are those multiple prongs to that process. You know, that that legal strategy, and then the actual setting up the the RIA, and then and then that ongoing compliance, and so you know with with your whole operation certainly that can all be done under one one proverbial roof which is great so to kind of dive in on that on that because we're focusing primarily on that legal part here today so of the the whole spectrum of advisors out there so of course there's plenty of affiliation models and firms and all those sorts of things what what advisors really need to be I don't. Want, I don't know if "concerns" the right word, but but the, this is something they need to be cognizant of. They need to be aware of, and then and then there's perhaps some advisors that it's it's less so. Maybe you're an independent broker dealer. So is that how different is that from someone at you know more captive, say wirehouse type firm? So who 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 really needs to be paying attention to this sort of thing?
1: So you know, generally, I'm, I'll tell you that every single advisor that plans to continue working with clients from their prior firm needs to consider availing themselves uh, of counsel. So, you know, certainly clearest cases for that are those that are coming from captive employment models. Um, But every single advisor has unique risks to their transition. You could have an advisor that's leaving a, um, what I'll I'll say is a more independent uh, environment and they still have to navigate client privacy issues and frankly you know client privacy issues and the handling of data in the context of employment transitions is uh, is a top concern that we've seen really over the past 10 years that's really just continued to escalate and it becomes more and more clear uh, as you read what are the regulators up to what are the disciplinary proceedings that are taking place And what are the lawsuits um, that are taking place? So there's there's no correlation um, of how you handle data with whether or not you're coming from a captive environment. Um, and, And so it's always a consideration. And I think that it's really important to understand that most advisors that come to us, um, even if they've done due diligence ahead of time, the source of that diligence is really important because um, we would estimate that 85% of our new clients, Um, Are misinformed about what their responsibilities and obligations are, and you know we can't even fathom to guess you know how many that would include, um, and how much more that that statistic would increase when uh, because we're not even counting those that that aren't coming to us right, those that never seek counsel. Um, I would say about another three quarters of those cite their colleagues' transition as the number one way that they have gathered their intel of how they anticipate their transition going. Uh, and as you said, Brad, in your opening, something that, that five years ago would have applied doesn't necessarily uh, apply today. And I think probably even worse is that um, about half of those advisors are assuming that they have to take a far more conservative approach than what they actually have to do. So they're leaving chips on the table. So uh, as we begin our work with, uh, with any advisor, uh, we're really helping them navigate those avoidable mistakes, understanding their own do's and don'ts, which are different even from somebody else who's left the same firm. Um, and what we really try to uh, instill in them is that those horror stories that you read about in advisor hub they were avoidable
0: yeah I it's, it's interesting you point that out I, I make a habit of every time I see one of those headlines and, and whatever whatever uh, you know periodical it's coming out and w- almost without fail I mean and maybe maybe a hundred percent you and I encourage everyone click click on those links and then inevitably they did something they absolutely should not have done. Uh, right. un- unforced errors, um, silly things that could have been easily avoided with the right expertise. And it's, and it's a shame because that becomes significant challenges then for those advisors. And, and, and so just, um, you know, there's the easy stuff to avoid, but then there's even the, the, the lesser known issues that are again, relevant and, and always evolving that have to be kind of be looked at. So, um, and thanks for touching on privacy. I'll circle back to that in a moment. Um, but one, one of the big things that's often mentioned in this conversation, this sort of topic, is, is the protocol. Uh, and so if you could give us just a, a quick synopsis of what the, what the protocol is for those that are not aware, and then, and then kind of what the current day status of that and where that does or does not come into conversations you're having with advisors.
1: So it is a well-worn path for transitions. Um, And certainly it's a game changer if it applies. So first, um, you know understand where it where it applies it's a tool that you really want to vigorously protect and make sure that you don't lose its protections so it hasn't rewritten all of the rules but it certainly gives you significant advantages that can make a difference in the pace of your uh, of your communications with clients that you're serving at your current firm so it is a ceasefire agreement um, that has um, thousands over with 4,000 signatories at this point. Firms can sign and join on the same day and with a push of a button, their signatories. Um, Firms can also withdraw on 10 days notice but we've seen that situation gamed before you might remember back when morgan stanley and uh and ubs withdrew from the protocol um their their advisors had uh not 10 days but three days to make a decision am i going to continue to sit in my chair or uh or am i going to try to get out before i lose the ability to utilize the protocol um, and if you can believe it, we actually uh, worked with teams who had never even considered leaving, but when they heard their firm was leaving the protocol, uh, they, were, they were out um, and were turning in a letter of resignation within that, uh, uh, that three-day period in order to make a transition. So it's important. Here are the primary advantages that you get if you have the ability to use the protocol. Um, you, if you have a non-solicitation restriction as to your clients, your firm, by being a member in the protocol, has agreed that it will forbear from enforcing that non-solicitation restriction. So you'll be able to solicit your clients so long as you follow the rules. Um, That you will also be permitted by your firm to take limited client information with you. So basic contact information, we used to call it Rolodex information, um, uh, as well as some very limited account naming information. Um, And that means that your firm has also agreed to stand down from enforcing what would typically be confidentiality or trade secret restrictions um, against you. Now it has some significant uh, wrinkles, I'll call them, and you have to know whether or not those wrinkles apply to you. So some firms have special arrangements where uh, it depends on where your clients came from were they referrals did you buy them from a retiring advisor Um, whether you're part of a team is that whole team leaving what does your teaming agreement say how long have you been in that teaming arrangement those can all impact um, your ability to put all clients in the bucket of the protocol. So you can actually have an advisor, Brad, that um, for a portion of their book, they can utilize the protocol and for a portion of their book, they cannot. Um, we have right now um, uh, over 30 firms that have what we'll call special arrangements or they've conditionally joined the protocol, meaning that you have to look at, if your firm is one of those firms, you have to look at how have they limited their use of the protocol. Um, And and if you fall into some of those, what I'll call exception categories, then you really have to have to navigate that. We liken it to kind of dancing between raindrops sometimes to know how it applies to your specific situation.
0: Yeah, I think as a great point on the you know, I think there might be a default view that if I'm at a protocol firm and I'm joining a protocol firm, I'm good to go. I don't need expert legal advice on all this. And I think that just demonstrates how, yeah, that's a big help from a starting point, but there could be those nuances that until you dive into those conversations, you don't really for sure know exactly what that situation's like. So I think that's a great point. And and, and what also point out, you know, um, as we go through these questions, certainly advisors have long moved away from non-protocol firms. Uh, They've long moved away from firms that were in the protocol and are now back out of the protocol and advisors are still making moves. So it's certainly a luxury if the protocol is part of a move, uh, but but by no means does it have to be a requirement to to potentially make a successful transition. And and so with, with that in mind, are there any scenarios you come across where someone comes to you, you know, obviously we might not want to mention any particular firms, uh, you know, kind of publicly, but, uh, whether it's a models or affiliation types where those covenants and their agreements are just so restrictive that, that, that there's not a path forward even with the best of intentions, or is there generally always some strategy, albeit, maybe just different, obviously varying levels of risks involved.
1: So, um, to be stuck, you have to choose to be stuck. Um, no one can force you to stay at a firm, right? That's indentured servitude, uh, and so uh, so that's not um, that's not really applicable. But it does mean that the strategy that someone coming from a firm with really uh, overbearing restrictive covenants, um, even more so from a contractual standpoint, they're gonna wanna have a really clear understanding as to how do those restrictions apply in their case. So we look at uh, through uh, the transition intelligence that we work with them. We're looking at, of course, as a starting point, their contracts, but it's really important to understand what state law Applies in in those types of circumstances. Look, if we can use the protocol for broker recruiting, and none of those restrictions are going to be enforced because the firm has agreed not to enforce them, um, then then that's great, right? That's your smooth path. Uh, but if you don't have that available to you, you can still make a move, but you've got to have a really keen understanding of what that move is going to look like, and. Where, where those risks really lie, because the worst thing that, that can happen is that an advisor transitions, particularly in a situation like that, a non-protocol transition, and they take on risks that they didn't have to take on, that they could have accomplished things in a different way using a different strategy. So I call that sort of you know throwing firecrackers at your own feet. Why would you do that? Well, you wouldn't, but you need to know uh, what those risks look like.
0: Yeah, and so you know, one of the, one of the risks you mentioned earlier, and so maybe if we could circle back to that is is things beyond perhaps solicitation beyond protocol, and so take like a reg sp pri- privacy type issues, uh, which I believe, and if you could point out, you know, the I think that's even sometimes varies by state. You need to be cognizant of, of perhaps what state you're in, and so if you could touch on that, and then as you were talking, I think a thing that's important to point out, not not um, to give an unsolicited kind of plug for you and your services. But I think you guys have rightfully built a reputation for being pro business. I think it's real easy for an attorney to just say the answer is no. Um, can't do, can't do that. And and it's, that's the easy way out. And in some, some cases it, it might be a firm no, but I, but I think it's as, as demonstrated by you saying that to that last question, you know, Hey, we, we got to look at it. Hey, there, there could be options. I think that's indicative of, why you guys have the reputation you do is because again, it's, it's much easier just to tell someone no and go on their way than, than And I think you guys try to find workable solutions, but, but at the same time, not, not shy away from, from giving the hard truth if ever needed. So on, that, on those other variables like reg SP, any, anything else to add on that, that that folks, maybe it's not occurring to them that, that, hey, that should be part of the conversation as well, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, so uh, Reg SP is one piece of what you look at when you're trying to assess in the context of a transition, um, how does that apply? And that's what you read about uh, if you look at enforcement actions, for example, um, where regulators have said, hey, you've caused a firm to violate Reg SP and the way this data was handled. Reg SP is the federal privacy uh, regulation um, and it requires at its core that client non-public information be protected. That's sort of the foundational piece that y- you look at that, uh, that is really going to apply across the board. But then on that same subject of data, you've got to overlay what state does the advisor sit in There could be special rules that apply based on the advisor sitting in that state, and there are rules that relate to the handling of data because that advisor sits uh, in a certain uh, jurisdiction, like Massachusetts, for example, California is another example. Um, The next is where are the advisor's clients located? Right, what's their primary state of residence? So we will look at that um, when we're building a transition strategy because it makes a difference that where you have a state law that is more restrictive than what Reg SP provides for, right? Reg SP provides that clients have to be put on notice of how their data is gonna be used and they have to be given the opportunity to opt out, to say, no, you know, I don't want my data to be shared in that way. But there are some states that and there's there are a handful, um, you know, Vermont, Massachusetts, uh, California, um, that will also say that's not good enough. We protect our citizens in a more rigid way. And if you want to use the data for any of our citizens, they have to affirmatively opt in and say, you can take our data, right? It's an affirmative consent. That can be particularly challenging if you're leaving uh, you know, on a Friday afternoon, here's my letter of resignation and it's effective immediately. So that's something that has to be baked into a transition uh, strategy. And then you have to look at your own firm's privacy policy. That's where the firm is informing clients how their data is going to be used, and clients may have consented or may have opted out. And you need to look at your own agreements, which could also have special provisions in there. So um, I know we've talked a lot about restrictions, but I want to go back for a minute to something that I said at the outset, which is that so many advisors come to us And they're leaving chips on the table. They're taking a more restrictive approach than they have to. There are circumstances where an advisor comes to us and we look at their agreements. Sometimes they've been with their firm for so long that their agreements actually predate Reg SP. Or there are other uh, negotiations that they had on their way into that firm where they actually have more rights, such as the ability to retain client data and then we have to coordinate how does that contractual provision apply today, because you still have to comply with prevailing privacy rules and so it can be part of the strategy can be updating that contract, if you will, while still enforcing that contractual right doing it in a way that it fits within today's regulatory uh, framework. So. Definitely things that you want to have knowledge of before you turn in that letter of resignation. And what we're really planning for as we're looking at all of these issues is making sure that if there is a forensic based inquiry, right, somebody says, we wanna see your cell phone, we wanna see your personal email account in the context of a dispute. We wanna make sure you're ready for that to the greatest extent possible.
0: Yeah, and so part of preparing folks, uh, you talk about you know looking into all these factors, and and you're 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 framing that as the the transition intelligence. So uh, if if you could expand upon that, and so for for folks listening along, you know that that is, and if you could walk us through it, you guys have packaged all of this this service together into a single package to consider all these variables and provide those strategies that that advisors should be considering using going forward. So what, what does that kind of package look like? What's that experience like, you know, they, they call up, I mean, what's, what's the whole engagement process with that? If you could walk us through that.
1: Sure. So, um, uh they will an advisor will come away with a really clear understanding from the outset um, even at the, the point that they're engaging us that this is not a one-hour consult where you know we're going to shoot from the hip and give you uh, a lot of generalized information um, this is a this is a critically important and most important move that these advisors are going to make um, they have not only their business at risk they have their families at risk their livelihood Hood at risk, and uh, and if they make a misstep, it can have really just um, just terrible consequences that that extend beyond. Days, weeks, and months after their transition. So with transition intelligence, we take a, uh, a very personalized approach to every transition. Look, we've taken a lot of a lot of folks out of, um, you know, pick a firm, right? Any of the wirehouses, of course, um, and uh, you know, independent broker dealers, RIAs, trust companies, but no two transitions coming out of the same place are exactly the same. I'm still waiting for that. Uh, That cookie cutter, and I've been doing this for, you know, running this group for 12 years now. So um, transition intelligence, we're going to start with an intake. Um, And that is that before we even get into here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. We're going to start the conversation with learning about the advisor, the team. How their, how their business is structured. And we want to learn about their clients. Where do they get them? Um, and historically, what has their legacy been? Uh, did they come to their current firm uh, from other firms? but um, Or did they really build their business where they sit now? We want to really dig into unique features of their business business. Um, and then after that call, uh, we're, we're going to, of course, leave them with some rules of the road, things to, uh, uh, to be cognizant of so that they're not creating hazards. Um, and then we have our second call with them where we, uh, prior to that call, we have delivered to them our written transition intelligence materials that are going to include um, our memorandum, which is really a core document for them. That is a key part of the playbook, Uh, and, and that document is going to provide to them the legal information that they need to know that relates to their particular situation, how the laws, rules, regulations, state law, how all of that applies to them. We'll then have a second call with them after they've had the ability to go through that. We will walk through then during that second call, really what does the transition strategy look like? And it's a back and forth. Advisors are called upon to assess risk. They're called upon to determine the cost benefit to taking certain steps Uh, and so at the end of that call, they really have a clear understanding of what does that playbook look like. And look, it's a lot easier um, to plan a rational strategy when you're not in the thick of things, where you're not, you know, having uh, having allegations hurled at you, where you've contemplated uh, variables that may exist in your transition and made a clear determination as to. What you're going to do in those situations. You know, often we'll have advisors who call us, um, you know, a handful of days after they've transitioned and they say, well, you know, this is happening. What do I do? And we're able to go back with them and say, let's look at the plan. Because we created this plan. We've already decided this issue, and here's what we talked about, and here's how we decided to handle that. And is there anything happening now, any new facts, any new variables that would cause us to change the plan? And the answer is most often no. And that means you continue running straight because you don't have a reason to turn. Um, So transition intelligence really gives them that plan, as well as collateral documents that that would be necessary for their particular strategy. So any documentation that they're going to need, right, a a letter of resignation, for example, that's included. But there's a host of other collateral that we would deliver at the same time. Uh, And then we have a final call with them, which is uh, usually a week or so before they're going to transition. And that call, we're going to talk to them about the logistics of resignation. Um, That's a special subject. Area where we're where we're dealing with remote workers, um, folks who have things at home that they wouldn't normally have. It's not the same resigning today as it is, you know, two years ago where you just walked into your manager's office to resign. There are special considerations, uh, and so we go through that in our final call with them, resignation conversations, and then what to expect in the days and weeks following resignation.
0: In in. So a lot of, lot of great steps there. So from a timing perspective, so I guess we kind of have two timelines. We have, how long does the transition intelligence process itself generally take? And I'm, I'm sure there's reasons it could go longer or shorter, but but generally how long is the, kind of everything you just described? So that's, that's one part of it. And then the other part is, at what point should an advisor perhaps start engaging with someone like you? So if, if someone maybe they're working with me and they're exploring the RA model. And, and maybe it's nine months out I'm I'm kind of penciling in when I want to make this move obviously the transition intelligence process isn't nine months so at so at what point should I be reaching out to begin that dialogue so kind of kind of two parts to it if you don't mind sure answering.
1: so um so I'll tell you first The I think um the record, uh, just to set the parameters of this timeline, um, we've done uh, same day transitions. So okay. you might imagine that's uh, it's a little bit of a fire drill, yeah, but yeah. but in appropriate circumstances, you need to do that. Um, and I think the farthest out transition that I can think of is that um, we have worked in, uh, with an advisor who planned transition seven years in advance Uh, so Mm -hmm. obviously a far more elongated process where's the sweet spot right where's the norm And transition intelligence is usually accomplished within 30 days, um, but the actual plan and implementation of the plan uh, can vary widely. You know, we will often come across advisors that, for whatever reason, uh, we don't have 30 days and we need to work through a much more expedited or custom, otherwise customized timeline. um, And we're going to adjust the program delivery based upon those needs. Um, In terms of uh, uh, part two of your question of when should an advisor be e- engaging and exploring these issues. Look, the sooner the better. Um, when an advisor has a uh, that that thought that I'm going to be potentially making this move, it's time, uh, and that is because this is really part of due diligence. Uh, it is um, it is unfortunate when an advisor for whatever reason thinks that they don't need to engage in a process like this. They don't need to have a real understanding of these issues until they're really on the precipice of actually resigning. It's unfortunate when that happens where the advisor has actually made mistakes uh, and they have created risks that they did not need to create. They've made missteps. That we then need to spend time, um, you know, putting the genie back in the bottle, if you will, and and figuring out how can we fix this before you turn in your your letter of resignation, you know, while someone is employed by a firm, they do have ongoing obligations to the firm, and. Those are your duties of loyalty, your duties to continue acting at the interests of your employer. And those need to be carefully navigated, right? We spent a lot of time today talking about contract and about privacy rules, but what you can and can't do between the time that you're thinking about leaving and when you actually hand in that letter of resignation and let your employer know you're leaving uh, is equally important. And it's uh, it's really... a, a an unfortunate outcome to see advisors who have not sought counsel. And then, you know, these are the things you read about in advisor hub sometimes, but suddenly they've resigned. They get a cease and desist letter, Um, maybe even in a protocol transition. They get a cease and desist letter and they get some allegations thrown at them, maybe even an arbitration or a TRO filed. And when when we look at it, uh, it was absolutely avoidable they did things that they didn't know were overstepping right you're allowed to prepare to compete but you cannot overstep that
0: yeah and, and uh, again so so unfortunate no one no one at least the ones that are arguably quite avoidable um it's a hard lesson to learn after the fact to be sure yeah. um Last question. And you you mentioned a little on this in your last answer, but um, again, think of timelines. So that advisor is now kind of seeing that future, seeing that path they might take with this whole kind of process, but things they could be doing today. And, and so, you know, you, you touched on it, you know, be careful about what you, you should or shouldn't be doing while you're still employed. But um, any other things you, you can think of that they want to know? And I'll, I'll give the disclaimer that whatever you come up with won't be an exhaustive list. Clearly there's all, <laughs> there's all kinds of variables, but you know, any, any particular little gem. So like one I can think of is, you know, clearly it would be helpful to attempt trying to organize and, and identify what agreements you've maybe signed with your firm, which I realize for some of you could be very difficult if not impossible, cause it's 20 years ago, but, but clearly anything you can be Doing now to obtain that without raising any red flags would be a step so maybe thoughts on that or any other strategies you think are just advisable for for people to be thinking about now if, if they're not yet at that point of, of perhaps reaching out for more formal conversation.
1: Yeah, so I would say first, um, you know baseline don't do anything, because to your point. Um, advisors sometimes come to us and say, so I I figured I was going to need my documentation. And so I went to HR and I asked for it. Um, now they're now they're on the radar, right? As a as a flight risk, that's one of those hazards that they created without uh, without the need to do so. You know, if somebody comes to us and they don't have their documents, while we always uh, will work from your documents uh, if you have them, that's the best resource for us um, because we've been doing this so long. We we do have our own collection uh, and we'll consult our own library, right? We can look and determine uh, approximately when you joined that firm and uh, and what agreement it's likely that you signed. Um, advisors may say, you know, I haven't signed anything. Well, you haven't signed anything with your current firm but you signed something three acquisitions ago and your contract has rolled from firm to firm to firm as a result uh, and I promise you when you resign, uh, your firm has the microfiche that shows that you, you had a contract. Um, so, you know it is it, it is important that they seek information early, as I said, because you are navigating contractual obligations, regulatory obligations, uh, legal obligations, as well as uh, uh, policies of your firm. Um, And where advisors try to take sort of a, I'm just going to do this first approach because I know I'm going to need it. Sometimes they come to us and they've already, uh, they've already violated potentially an applicable rule, an applicable FINRA rule, an applicable company policy, or they've already put themselves on the radar by filing something or having something filed that's a publicly available document. It's not at all unusual that when somebody comes to us, we say, so we know that that you went ahead and you set up this entity uh, with, uh, you know, LegalZoom.com, or your buddy who uh, who's done other work for you and helped you out, um, but we actually need to unwind it, and so that advisor has spent money only to literally have it have it flushed down the toilet. Um, They should, what should they be doing? They should be getting informed early, not having conversations that are unnecessary. They really need to have a very tight circle of trust. So what they should be doing is getting informed, but they should not be sort of polling the industry and polling colleagues and and former colleagues um, uh, to do that all that they really are accomplishing there is that they're gathering anecdotal information that's not necessarily reliable or up to date or even applicable to their circumstance. And they're spreading the word that they're, they're doing due diligence to leave. It, this is um, a really small space, right? I, and I say that this is a very small sandbox that we all play in. And it is not at all surprising when word gets back to a firm that they have a flight risk um, uh, from either rumors in the industry or because of a filing or something that's publicly discoverable. You know, this is the most important trade, if you will, of any of these advisors' lives, um, and they don't want to proceed on on anecdotal information they have to treat it that way. So um, on the surface, everything isn't, uh, certainly isn't as it appears. And every transition carries some level of risk, but by gaining clarity early in their due diligence process from the right resources, they'll be armed with certainty, confidence, what they can and cannot do. And look, from knowledge, that's gonna breed control over those risks.
0: Yeah, and I think I think the key is just how every one of these you mentioned it is just is so unique and so different. And so I I I, I thank you. This has been extraordinarily helpful. But we've we've only talked about these issues at a macro level. Uh, you really have to dive in on your specific circumstances. And it's interesting. People have even asked me before because I, I make all these videos and podcasts, and I I answer questions. And I have guests on. They're like, "Well, Brad, you're you're giving away all the answers. You don't. No one's gonna come to you to to get your advice." And it's like. No, because every, every situation is unique and different. And so we, we can sit on a on a you know uh, a video like this and, and provide that macro advice. And I think it's been very helpful. But ultimately, you got to get the devils in the details of what each particular advisor's circumstances um, and, and work with your firm. And, and I, I love the, the document library you mentioned. I mean, resources like that are, are wonderful. And, and, and talking to your old colleague that made a move is a document library of one is is not um at all <laughs> helpful when when all the circumstances that are out there uh it's very very helpful uh i really appreciate you coming on uh for folks that are interested in in connecting with you on this learning more about this what's the best way to get a hold of you uh, and take a take a deeper look at the offering
1: Sure, absolutely. You can uh, you can find us on the web, of course, Hamburger Law or Market Council. Um, And, uh, um, you know, we're happy to talk to you about your particular situation and how we might be able to uh, to best assist you, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, transition intelligence or, you know, the entirety of actually helping you set up your new firm or helping you make your move.
0: Terrific, and so again, uh, Hamburger Law Firm or Market Council—you uh, know, very well known. You can Google both of them, but I'll put their their exact domains in the uh, the show notes as well. But they're uh, they're not hard to find at all if you if you just do a quick Google search on that. So, uh, with that, uh, Sharon, I really appreciate you coming on. Great information, and uh, look forward to uh, hopefully having uh, some folks reach out to you and, and dive deeper into these topics.
1: Great talking to you. Thanks for the time today, Brad. Sure.